Hello, greetings, so glad that you joined us, and we hope that you are well. We're very glad that you have an interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan, I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. Today I'd like to talk about a subject that is of great importance in the kingdom of God among Christians. It's a, it involves a word that we use a lot, so that word is worship. And as we begin this conversation about worship, I'd like to uh, ask you to engage with me in a thought process. And so um, we have two questions I want like for you to think about. And so uh, I'm going to ask the two questions. Then you can go ahead and uh, perhaps pause, uh, what you, what, however you're listening. Uh, take a few seconds and reflect upon it if you are in a position, ideally, if you could, to write down your answers to these two questions. And then when you've done, gone through that process, to go ahead and uh, restart and we can continue in our conversation. And so here are the two questions. When you think of worship, what comes to mind? So again, our first question here is, when you think of worship, what comes to mind? The second question is, when you use the term worship, to what do you refer? Again, when you use the term worship, to what do you refer? So what comes to mind and what do you refer to when you use the word worship? So we'll go ahead and we'll pause this recording and then we'll come back and continue when you're ready. All right. Glad that you're back, and I want you to know that there were, are no wrong answers to that quest, those questions right now. Uh, those questions are basically just to get an understanding of where you are. Where, what do, how do you understand worship? And, and to keep in mind that how you understand worship is not just about you, but also about your environment and the ways you've heard the word used. That your understanding of worship is going to be conditioned uh, if you've been in certain church environments or uh, in certain uh, world environments to be certain things. Now, I don't know what you thought of or wrote down, but I hope that we can agree that worship in popular thinking is all, can be fairly summarized as going to church. For a lot of people. Uh, what are assemblies often called? They're normally called worship services. People will talk about the acts of worship. And uh, maybe, maybe even you defined worship as going to church, or maybe going to church is part of your definition of worship. And so many times when worship is being discussed, it centers on the presupposition that worship is, is directly tied with the acts of the assembly and with the assembly itself. Uh, these things done in the assemblies is called worship. And even if it's not being done in the assembly, a lot of times these same things will be called worship, uh, singing and, and praying and things like that. And there's kind of a, a feedback loop about that, because these things are called worship. And so because worship is used to talk about church and things you do in church, when people start reading in the Bible the word worship, that's the type of thing that they have in mind, because that's the way that the term has been used. And so when you talk about worship, it's, it, it's in terms of thing, things assembly. An example, in John 4, 23 and 24, where Jesus talks about how the Father is looking for uh, true worshipers to worship in spirit and in truth, that God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Then immediately after that, when we start talking about what it means to worship in spirit and truth, immediately start shifting toward these acts of the assembly and how they're done. And, um, but we have to ask ourselves, as, as good servants of God, is this what he intended? Is this the way that the Bible actually uses the word worship? And so that's why, like, spend some time keeping in mind what we've, we've already talked about in terms of worship, and, and keeping in mind whatever your answer was as we began. Let's look at the word worship. Let's look at the word in English. Let's look at the word in, in, in Hebrew and Greek. Uh, and let's look at the other words that, that, in, that are involved in this conversation that end up being thrown in with worship. And, and this is, again, an exploration based in, in, in the research that I personally have done and has been attested to by some others. And again, this is not an attempt to condemn or indict, but simply to make aware uh, of the way the Bible talks about this 
this this concept, and to make sure that you're aware that a lot of the you know that what we're going to talk about, if you, if you notice, there's some differences between how you've understood and what the Bible's teaching. To recognize that much of that again is based upon this understanding that we have in English, and that um, it's not something for which you ought to blame yourself. Because we think about this word uh, worship. Okay, and again, why are we caring about words? Well, Second Timothy two and verse fifteen, uh, Paul told Timothy that he needed to be diligent to present, uh, to do his best to present himself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And so, to handle rightly the word of truth means we have an understanding of what the terms mean that God has used. And what's going on with those words in English. Not because we crave some kind of unhealthy dispute about words, uh, as Paul will continue to warn uh, Timothy about in 2 Timothy. Uh, Not at all. Just that we want to understand and to call Bible things by Bible words. And to understand how God is speaking to us in Scripture. Now, English uses the word worship. And this comes from Webster's Dictionary. To adore, to pay divine honors to, to reverence with supreme respect and veneration, to respect, to honor, to treat with civil reverence, to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission as a lover, to perform acts of adoration, to perform religious service. The word worship itself comes to say of worthship, as in your worthship, as in somebody who is worthy of receiving honor. For our purposes, we're going to focus on the first and last definitions we talked about. To adore, to pay divine honors to, to reverence with supreme respect and veneration, and to perform religious service. And the first thing that we need to establish is that there is no equivalent word or even overarching concept in the Bible that has the range of meaning that English worship has. Uh, Another way of putting that is that, that the Hebrew and Greek words translated by worship in your Bibles do not mean everything included by the English word. This may seem shocking at first, but it really isn't, and it's not unique. Another great example is this love. The English word love has this wide range. We call it a semantic range. Uh, and, and that range includes everything from sexual attraction and, and feelings to uh, friend feelings to a self-sacrifice, uh, like as what Jesus did on the cross. Um, in Greek, there's three words at least that kind of maintain that, that same range. Uh, there's the agape for self-sacrifice, phileo for um, friend love, and, and eros for, for that kind of erotic love. And so we see that we have three Greek words for one English word. And we're, we understand, okay, well, love has different meanings because of, of those different ideas. The same is true with worship. Because Hebrew and Greek have terms to describe that first definition, to uh, acts of adoration and devi- paying divine honors to God. And Hebrew and Greek also have words that talk about performing acts of religious service. But these are different words. They're sometimes used right next to each other, as we're going to see. But they're different words. They're not referring to the exact same thing. And this challenge is magnified in modern use. We're going to call something called worship creep. That that may sound uh, disturbing, but, but consider this. In the King James Version, translated in 1611, the word worship is found 108 times in 102 verses. In the Holman Christian Standard Bible, a recent uh, translation, the word worship is found 185 times in 174 verses. So we've got uh, almost 70 more instances uh, being found in 72 more verses. Meanwhile, in the contemporary English version, which is much more of a a thought-for-thought translation than word-for-word. Worship is found 622 times in 587 verses. So it's over three times even what the Holman Christian Standard has. Why do we have such great variants? Why is worship seen so many times in some and and fewer comparatively times in others? Is it because we found manuscripts that use the word worship a lot more? Not at all. Uh, in the American Standard, it, worship is found 107 times in 98 verses, so very close to where the King James is. In the English Standard, it's used 110 times in 104 verses. Again, very similar to what's in the King James. Instead, what hap- has happened is that 
modern translators are finding it more comfortable to use the word worship in more instances. So what ends up happening is that more Greek words are being translated by worship than would be translated that way in these other versions. And that can be a very pernicious difficulty, because when a word takes on wider range of meaning like that, it becomes less meaningful, and because it leads to confusion. And a lot of confusion exists about worship, and I'm sure that you've heard of the worship wars, and the various forms that the worship wars have taken, and one of the reasons for that is because you've got these different ideas in Hebrew and Greek being used with different words, but they're all being translated by the English word worship. And so everybody is arguing about what worship means and, and basing it on a different foundation that's all covered within the same word. Uh, an example we could give, uh, baptism. Uh, baptism is a transliteration of the Greek baptizo, which means to dip, to immerse. And so that's why uh, it is recognized uh, that New Testament baptism was by immersion. Now, in later traditions started allowing pouring and sprinkling. So now in English, if you were going to define baptism in English, it would be a religious ritual uh, for initiation into Christianity involving sprinkling, pouring, or immersing the person in water. Or with water. That is an accurate definition of the term in English, how it's being used. Now, in Greek, it's not only a religious ritual. You can baptize your clothes, for instance, even though we don't talk about that in English. And so now, imagine if every single time in the Bible, uh, there's somebody did a pouring or a sprinkling, that in modern translator translate that as baptizing. It would, it would cause a lot of confusion. Because a lot of different ideas that were not originally under that idea of baptism are now being brought into baptism. And the range has changed and the meaning has changed. And you would understand that, that is, that's going to cause a lot of difficulty. A lot of people are going to be very confused and believe that they have done something they have not accurately done. Uh, and that becomes a very big difficulty. And that's why words do matter. And that's why that the terms that are used to translate should make it understandable. Yeah, there are times where you're going to use a similar word in English for different words in other languages. But they should be related so that you, you, know, you don't have the confusion that you get. But as I hope we're going to see, uh, worship is confusing because of this wide range in English that's much more specific in Hebrew and Greek. And so let's get into the Hebrew and Greek. What are these terms and how should we understand them? Well, one of the important things to understand about lexicons and dictionaries in general is that uh, the numbered definitions are not just there randomly. That, in fact, when a lexicographer uh, establishes a definition for a word, the definitions are listed in levels of frequency and attestation. So the first definition is going to be the most prominent. It's going to be the most often used definition. And as you go down the list, they're going to be used fewer and fewer times. So, worship, first one is to pay divine honors to, 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 to adore, to revere in English. Uh, the primary two words translate, that they're tra use, or that worship is used to translate, is the Hebrew word shahach and the Greek word proskune. Now, shahach is, in Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew lexicon, defined as bow down to prostrate oneself. Proskunein is defined in Thayer's Greek lexicon as to kiss the hand to or towards one in token of reverence. Among the Orientals, especially the Persians, to fall upon the knees and touch the ground with the forehead as an expression of profound reverence. In the New Testament, by kneeling or prostration to do homage to one or make obeisance, whether in order to express respect or to make supplication. So one notice that in uh, both of those words' definition, the primary definition for our purposes, uh, New Testament, Old Testament, is it involves prostration or rendering obeisance. So what does prostrate mean? Prostrate mean? We don't use that word a whole lot. It means to throw down, overthrow, to demolish, to ruin primarily. But it also can mean to prostrate oneself. It means to throw oneself down in, or to fall in humility or adoration, to bow in humble reverence. And to render obeisance, from Webster's, means a bow or courtesy, an act of reverence made by an inclination of the body or the knee. So to, to, to show some examples of this, in Genesis 18 and verse 2, we have an example of shahach. 
where Abraham lifts up his eyes, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and shahacked himself to the earth. He bowed down to the earth. We also have examples in Genesis 37. And by the way, these examples are not exhaustive. We have uh, Shahak and Proskunain are used many times in the Bible. We're just pointing out representative examples to kind of give an idea. In Genesis 37 and verse 7, uh, Joseph had a dream. And in his dreams that they're bringing sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and shahacht, or bowed down to my sheaf. Another dream he had that uh, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were shahaking to me. In verse 9, bowing down to me. And in Exodus 20, in verse 5, important example there, uh, God has told them not to make carved images, and you shall not shahak to them or serve them. Uh, you shall not bow down to them. And we see many times in the Psalms and many other instances we find uses of this word shahak. When it comes to proskunane in the New Testament, as just some parallels, we have a very important one to keep in mind in Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew 4 and in verse 10, Satan has tempted him to bow down, to fall down and worship him. And so Jesus responds, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall proskunane the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You shall worship. You shall prostrate before. And what's important about that is worship there in Deuteronomy, the, the, the proskunane there is actually shahak. So that shows that it's understood that the Hebrew shahak and is best translated into Greek by proskunane. So it shows the relationship between those words, and we see that here. And to make sure we understand its meaning clearly, later on in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 8, and in verse 2, that Jesus stretches out his, uh, that a, a leper had found, uh, found, came to him, and he uh, proskuned before him. He knelt before him. And Jesus healed him in Matthew chapter 14, after uh, Jesus had calmed the storm, and Peter had walked on water, and Jesus got in the boat. That those in the boat proskunained him. They, sh- they, they worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. They bowed down, they prostrated themselves before him. Another place we, we see that is in the resurrection, Matthew chapter 28, and in verse 9, that the... <clears throat> Jesus met them in the resurrection, said greetings, and they came up, took hold of his feet, and proskunained him. They worshipped him. We also see this in Revelation. Revelation is another place where we have a lot of the use of this word. In chapter 5 and verse 14, that the four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and proskunained. They they worshipped. Chapter 11 and verse 16, they do the same. So we see uh, that shahak and proskunane are translated by worship in the Bible, and, and, and or bowed down, and, and it makes sense because again, it's and you even heard in the definition it is a uh, a gesture that indicates adoration and reverence, or at least reverence, if not adoration. So that is legitimate. That is what is going on. It is, this is not an argument attempting to suggest that worship is an inaccurate translation of that word. But we need to keep in mind that Shahak and Proskunein primarily and fundamentally refer to the physical action of bowing or prostration. That with one notable exception, John 4, we're going to talk about that, all of the usage of Shahak and Proskunein in the Old and New Testaments are con- explicitly say or are consistent with the physical gesture uh, of re- demonstrating humility and reverence before a superior. And so that's why we're in, when we talk about it, we either talk about Shahak and Proskunein, which I know we're using uh, other language words, but this is unfortunately what we have to do when we have language confusion, or we'll try to use render obeisance or prostrate to translate them. And as you'll see, you'll understand why no translator does that, because it's very clunky, but hopefully that'll kind of give us an idea of what's going on here. And that many would suggest, wait a second, wait a second. There's got to be more to it than just 
physically bowing down. And you can certainly suggest, and there are many times where there is more to worship than just bowing down to somebody. There's more to this proskunein and shahak than just the physical action. Uh, that there should be some mental and emotional submission and joy and all that as well. But the important thing to keep in mind is that whereas prostration and rendering obeisance, the shahak and may involve those extra things, it is not less than the physical gesture. It is not less than the action. And so the action cannot just be deleted out and you still have worship, so to speak. No, no, no. You know, the act, the worship is the act. It is the prostration. It is the rendering of obeisance. That is the idea of it. Now, another important thing is where prostration is done. It's done before the physical presence of a superior or where it is believed that God is present. Uh, a compelling example of this is in 1 Corinthians 14.25. Uh, when an unbeliever comes in and, and sees the, 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 the Christians properly prophesying, speaking in tongues, he's, he's convicted by all, and he falls down on his face, declaring that God is really among you. Why does he fall on his face? He believes he is before the presence of God. Uh, we see this... Uh, uh, the eunuch will go up to Jerusalem to worship. Why? Because he believes that's where the presence of God is. Perhaps the only exception to this is in Genesis 24, uh, verse 26 and 27, and is recounted in 48, where uh, Abraham's servant has gone to Padan Aram, uh, seeking a bride for Isaac. And he has prayed to Yahweh, and has prayed for Yahweh to give him a sign, that the woman to whom he asked to get water, and she says that she will get him water and also will water the camels. That may be the, the woman that he is supposed to, to go and see. Rebecca comes in, like, well, just when he's finishing this prayer, uh, he asks Rebecca for water. Rebecca also gives uh, his water to his camels. And so at that point, he uh, prostrates. He falls down, uh, even though ostensibly Yahweh would be somewhere else, you think. But perhaps, and most likely what's going on is because uh, Yahweh has prospered his way and Yahweh has answered his prayer, he believes Yahweh is present. And that is why he would bow down there. That would be consistent with all the other evidence. And this is also of the greatest importance when it comes to our understanding of worship. Prostration, shahach proskunen, are not used to describe other actions. In the Old or New Testament, singing, praying, sacrificing, Lord's Supper, etc., are never called proskunen or shahak. That prostration is its own act. You can't have acts of prostration. Prostration is the act itself. That it does, again, there might be more involved in the mind, but it involves that action. Now, it might be argued, wait a second, wait a second. We're told that the eunuch and Paul went up to worship in Jerusalem. And when they went there, they did more than just bow down. They did other things like making an offering and paying a vow and things like that. And that that is true. When the eunuch and when Paul went up to worship in Jerusalem, it should be also added that they're doing this according to the custom of the law of Moses. The eunuch is still uh, a Jew or a proselyte. Uh, when he goes up, he only hears about Jesus as he's coming back. Uh, Paul is going up to demonstrate to the Jewish Christians that he is not, st that he has not abandoned the customs of Moses. Um, but it's a, it's a question; it's not an assumption that we must make. Does that mean that when they went up, everything that they did was proskunen or shahak? Well, we have another example in the book of Acts that should uh, cause us to question that assumption. That's in Acts chapter 20, and in verse 7, where when uh, Paul and his associates are in Troas, we're told in that verse, in Acts 20 and verse 7, that on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them and tended to part on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So they came together to break bread. Paul talked. Paul preached. Taught. However that went down. Now, uh, do we now say that to preach or teach is to break bread? In the sense that Luke is using it? No, because we recognize, okay, when Luke says they came together to break bread, their primary reason for assembling was the Lord's Supper. While they were assembled to partake of the Lord's Supper, they did these other things. And we understand that there's this, this uh, 
linguistic device called uh, synecdoche, which is part for the whole. So you use part of something to describe the whole thing. It doesn't mean that that part now, you redefine other parts as the part you're mentioning. So just like we don't say that preaching or teaching is the Lord's Supper, because Luke said it was to break bread. Thus, when Paul and the eunuch go up to worship, to bow down, that's their primary purpose, is to go and prostrate in Jerusalem. And they also do these other things along with it. It does not mean that those other actions all of a sudden become proskunein, or because that's not the way the Greek is used, and it's not the most way, unnatural way of reading it. And again, nowhere else is that, is, would that assumption, that inference, be justified. Because nowhere else in the New Testament, anywhere, there's nowhere in the New Testament, where these other actions are spoken of as proskunein, as prostration. And in fact, that's going to be one of our major issues, is that proskunein is not being seen in the New Testament assembly. So, because proskunein is used at the bookends of the New Testament, so to speak, we see a lot in the Gospels, and we see it in Revelation. Yeah, I mean, we we see it in these two verses here in Acts eight and twenty-four, and that's talking about old covenant practices, and in First Corinthians fourteen twenty-five, what the unbelievers are doing in the assembly when they recognize God is present. Uh, why? Why is that? Well, again, we're, we're going to get there, but just keep that in mind that that's just the case. And it's also important because a lot of times you're going to see the word worship between in the books of Acts through Jude. And, and and just because you see worship there, as we're going to see, doesn't mean that's the Greek word proskune. And that's going to be the cause of a lot of the confusion. But the point is that prostration is worship in the sense that it is a physical action, that it is done to show reverence to a superior. But there's no New Testament connection or association directly between what proskunein is and what Christians do in the assembly. No passage in the New Testament lists or describes proskunein, prostration, as an act done by Christians in the assembly. And with the exception of John 4.24, proskunein continues to refer to a physical or actual gesture done in the actual presence of a superior, despite the fact that a lot of people want to completely spiritualize it. The New Testament authors do not do so. So let's get to that, John 4. We keep saying we're going to talk about this exception, so we need to talk about that exception. And that way we'll also kind of see why the term is not being used as much in between. Now in John 4, Jesus has been talking with a Samaritan woman. And so in John 4, and in verse 19, the woman says, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped, that's proskuning, on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem's place the people ought to prostrate. We use prostrate like we said. Jesus said, Or woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you prostrate before the Father. You prostrate before what you do not know. We prostrate before what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true prostrators will prostrate before the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to prostrate before him. God is spirit, and those who prostrate before him must prostrate in spirit and truth. It may sound a little different than what you're used to, and in the English standard, worship is being used where I have just applied prostrate. You can also go back and do make or render obeisance, and again, it sounds just as clunky, but it's a valid idea. Now, what's going on here? Samaritan woman is basically, okay, you say Jerusalem, we say Gerizim. Where are we supposed to bow down before God? Where is God's presence? Jesus says, hey, the day is coming where you're not going to go to Gerizim or Jerusalem to bow down. But if God is spirit, you're going to have to prostrate and bow down in spirit and truth. So how do we bow down in spirit and truth? How do we prostrate in spirit and truth? Most of the time, the way this is used is, is, is say, well, we are to do the assembly, things we do in the assembly, the, in the right way with the right attitude. Well, that's not different. I mean, it's not that we're not supposed to do things with, with, with the right well, We're supposed to do it the right way with the right spirit. I'm not, we're not trying to argue against that. But that's not really revolutionary. That's not any different than what the Jews were supposed to do. First Kings 12, 27-33, Jeroboam is condemned because he changed the location, the shape, uh, and, and who was doing the serving in the, in, in the temples. In Isaiah chapter 1, 10-17, uh, 
Isaiah has very sharp words for the rulers because they're not uh, they're they're offering sacrifices. They're they're keeping religious days, but they're not changing their hearts. They're not they're not do, uh, following God the way they should. We need to step back for a second, I think, and think about the fundamental logic here. What is the logic behind prostration? Well, you're making a gesture of humiliation and deference before a superior. Okay. And so the idea is that you have to have an idea of where that superior is so you can prostrate before them. If you would prostrate, say, behind the superior, or to turn your back to the superior while you're bowing down, that is no longer considered an honor. It is, in fact, considered an insult. And this is why, throughout the Old Testament, we have these, these statements that we often spiritualize may not think much of, but we, we shouldn't just rush to spiritualize them, but think about them in the physical, concrete sense. Like Psalm 95 and verse 6, where the psalmist cries out, uh, O come, let us shock, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before Yahweh our Maker. Or in Psalm 99 and verse 9, Exalt the Yahweh our God and worship, prostrate, at his holy mountain, for Yahweh our God is holy. Um, one, Psalm 132 and verse 7, to show that this is a very consistent theme in the Psalms and in the, in, in the understanding. Psalm 132 and verse 7, Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us prostrate. Let us worship. Let us render obeisance at his footstool. Let us bow down at his footstool. So the Israelites prostrated toward Jerusalem, toward the temple, because that's where they believed God's presence was. Likewise, in Matthew 43, they, they, the, the apostles prostrated before Jesus because they believed he was the Son of God. And we see that uh, people will prostrate again before Jesus in heaven, Revelation 5, verse 14. So the question becomes, where in this new covenant, when the, uh, Jesus has ascended and before he returns, toward where shall we bow down to bow down before God? Where are we going to prostrate ourselves before God? Because this is, after all, exactly what the situation is being addressed in John 4, 20 and 24. Because the Samaritans prostrated themselves before God at Gerizim, and Jews before God at Zion and Jerusalem, what Jesus' whole point is, well, there's no geographical point toward which God's presence is going to be maintained. Instead, the New Testament witness abundantly supplies the idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. First Corinthians six nineteen. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Here Paul says that the people of God, individually and collectively, are God's temple. What is a temple? The place where a God maintains his presence. And so where does God maintain his presence? In believers, individually and collectively. Now, are we supposed to bow down to ourselves or among ourselves? That would be rather narcissistic and self-defeating. No. And so that's why Jesus may mean exactly what he says, that we are to prostrate in spirit and truth. That prostrate in spirit is not do it in the right with the right attitude, but that our spirit, our soul, our pneuma, is prostrating. That as God is spirit, our spirit, which is man, his image, in a sense, bows down, prostrates before God according to the purposes and the standard that he set forth. Now, in this understanding, functionally, it, it, and that spiritual prostrate, it becomes somewhat like the idea of spiritual service. Because what does it mean for your spirit inside you, your soul, to bow down before God? Well, it means that it submits itself to the will of God in all things, which is going to be manifest in our spiritual service. So those who truly prostrate themselves to God in spirit and truth are the ones who don't have to go somewhere to do that, but they do so everywhere they are. And we need to be confident that when the Lord returns and we stand before him, and if we are entered into ushered into heavenly places before that day after our passing from this world, we will bow before Jesus. We will prostrate again before Jesus. And it's not like prostration has ended. This worship in this sense has ended. It's simply a matter of we can't. We're doing it in a spiritual form that's quite distinct from anything that came before it, and that will be seen in the resurrection. Because the Lord has ascended, and the presence of God is no longer in a building. It's no longer in one place. It is among His people. 
All right, so that was the primary idea from Shahak and Proskune. And there's another set of words that is sometimes translated worship, and that is Hebrew abad and Greek latre uain. Abad in Brown Driver Briggs is to labor, work, do work, work for another, serve another by labor, to serve as subjects, to serve God, to serve with Levitical service. Latre uain, according to Thayer, means to serve for hire, to serve, to minister to, either to the gods or men, and used alike of slaves and free men. In the New Testament, to render religious service or homage, to worship, to perform sacred services, to offer gifts, to worship God in the observance of the rites instituted for his worship, of priests to officiate to discharge the sacred office. So again, we've got all kinds of great examples of Avad in Genesis. Going back to Genesis... Uh, to talk about the use of Avad. In Genesis 25-23, talking about the stripes between Esau and Jacob, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be divided. The older one shall, the one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall Avad, shall serve the younger. In Exodus, we have the use of it in Exodus 20 and verse 5. Remember we said that you shall not shahak, you shall not bow down to those false gods. The carved images, you shall also not serve, you shall not avod them. And we see that often, you shall not bow down to them, you shall not serve them. And you think about the fact that as we're seeing that this is going to be consistent with definition 5 of to perform religious service. You shall not worship them and you shall not worship them. Could be a valid translation based upon how the words are translated in other places. And you can see the source of confusion because uh, these are related but not the same concepts. And it's also used in Numbers 424 and 1821 in terms of Levitical service. Now, La Treyu, again, Matthew chapter 4, we're going very, right back to Matthew 4. Again, it's uh, one that we used when discussing. Uh, Proskune, uh, where again Jesus is spying to the devil, you shall worship, you shall sh- uh, proskune in the Lord your God, and him only shall you latreue, you shall serve. And so here they're used in parallel, uh, you shall bow down and serve Yahweh, you shall not bow down and serve anybody else. The term is also used in Luke one seventy four as a prophecy about how they would serve God. Acts twenty seven twenty three, uh, very interesting use in Romans nine and verse four, where in Romans nine Paul is talking about the things that belong to uh, Israel, including the worship. The worship there is the, the, the service, the, the ministrations, the Levitical ministrations. And, of course, the big one, Romans 12, 1, also the noun form. Uh, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your logike latrea. So in, that's a rational service. But here in the English version, it's spiritual worship. And uh, so that's just one demonstration of what's going on there. Same is going on in Hebrews, uh, and even Revelation, Revelation 22 and verse 3, about serving or worshiping God. Now, Avad and Latreuane, as we see, fundamentally refer to serving. It can be used in a secular sense as well, but also religiously. And so when we talk about Latreuane and Avad, this is a little easier than than, uh, what we had with uh, Shahak and Proskune, because we're going to say it's to serve or service. And that is a very serviceable translation. And in fact, many times in many versions, those words will be translated that way. But sometimes they're translated as worship. Now, the serving is seen in religious rituals around the temple. And again, it's not like it's an inaccurate translation. Again, what's the fifth definition of worship in Webster's? To perform religious service. That is exactly what Latre Yuane and Avad are saying. Okay, and the service offered is more than just religious ritual, but it includes serving God beyond the rituals. As we see in Romans 12, verse 1, the idea that we are to offer ourselves living sacrifices, that this is acceptable service to God. So to serve and service are absolutely worship, uh, in the sense of performing acts of adoration or religious service, and that would include all the acts of the assembly. So now you want to wait a second, wait a second. We spent all this time investigating worship only to see that these acts can be called worship because they're acts of religious service. Yes, but. You knew the but was coming, right? The distinction and difference is that when we understand that 
the acts of the assembly are acts of worship because they're acts of religious service, we'll have to also see that it's not limited to the actions within the assembly and the act of assembly. That singing is an act of worship in the assembly like it is if you're singing a hymn while you're walking to work or driving to work. That preaching in the assembly is an act of worship, but so is talking to your neighbor about Jesus or helping somebody and doing good things to other people uh, outside the assembly. And, and see, that's the major distinction because a lot of time worship is not being used to talk about things outside of the assembly, that this, there's this exclusion being made where it's used to refer to the assembly of things only, and the justification for that is going back to proskunane. That's why we had to go through all of that about proskunane and look at all the different things about that word and realize that, no, that a lot of the arguments being made are fundamentally unsound because they're applying the Greek word in a place the Greek word was never applied in the New Testament. And so that becomes the big challenge. That's not the only word used. Uh, we also have the Greek word sebomai, which means to worship, as in to revere, to revere to worship. One of the main usages of that one is in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 15 and verse 9. Matthew, Jesus is actually quoting from Isaiah here. And he says that uh, these people honor me with their lips, for the heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines and commandments of men. Worship there is this Greek sebomai. Uh, in Isaiah 29, the Hebrew word yura means fear. And so it means, to, in vain do they fear me. Fear, worship. See, there's a kind of a connection there. But what ends up happening is, is that term is used a lot of times in the book of Acts. So, for instance, we said the bookends are where proskunein is. So you're reading in Acts, and all of a sudden, Acts 13 and verse 43, you read that, um, And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews devout... Uh, the devout people there, the devout converts Jews, and those are God-fearers. And then in Acts 17... In verse 7, that's how you know they're, they're, they're devout, they're God-fearers. Acts 17, 7. Um, uh, sorry, Acts 18. And verse 7. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Hey, worshiper! He lived next door to the synagogue. A worshiper there is Sepulma. It's the one who feared God. You know, we keep going to this. There's this constant idea of uh, fearing God. Yeah, sorry, Acts 17, 17, uh, where there's devout persons. There are God-fearers there again. We, we keep having this uh, over and over and over again. Acts 18, 13. This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Worship. There it is. It's not proskunen. It's sebomai. It's to fear God. To revere God. Is it a related concept? Yes. Is it very close to proskunin? Yes, but there is a slight difference between revering, fearing, revering, and prostration. Because fearing, revering is not a physical gesture. It does not demand a physical gesture. Well, proskunin does. So that's where you have this very fundamental difference and distinction. Uh, you also have the Greek word light tour game. I don't know if you heard the word liturgy before. That's from the Greek liturgain. Uh, liturgain means to perform a work, including one of religious service. So, very much kind of like latriuain. In Acts 13 and verse 2, you can read, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Well, there it is. In Acts, they're worshiping the Lord. That's not proskunin, that's liturgain. They were performing religious service. They're performing a work of religious service. So, the assembly is certainly an act of religious service. It's not prostration. Excuse me. And that becomes a complication. We also see it in Romans 15, 27, Hebrews 9, 21, Hebrews 10, 11. Uh, we also have Greek threskeia. Now, threskeia would be even a little bit more afield. It means religious discipline or religion. In fact, James uh, 1, 26 through 27, uh, we, we talk about uh, pure and undefiled religion. The sight of God the Father is this. Well, that religion there, that is uh, threskeia. That is the use of, of the term there. And um, we also see that in 
in Acts 26 and verse 5 about that uh, Paul uh, lived according to the strictest party of the religion. I have lived as a Pharisee. I have had the religious discipline as a Pharisee. Um, but you also get this term used in Colossians chapter 2 uh, where somebody in verse uh, Colossians 2 and verse 18 uh, disqualifies somebody assessing them in worship of angels. That worship there is actually the threskeia, the religious discipline or religion of angels. Uh, the discipline or religion that they would have received from angels. Uh, perhaps the strangest one that they sometimes translate as worship or service, therapuo, which means to heal. In Matthew 4.24, uh, when everybody came with their demons, uh, Jesus, you know, in the illness of Jesus, therapeuted them. He healed them. In, in Acts 17, though, Acts 17, in verse 25, <clears throat> nor is he served by human hands as though we need anything, talking about God. Uh, some versions will try to notice he worship by human hands. That's healing, that's therapeutic. In other words, he healed by human hands, which is very strange use uh, of, of that term. Um, that's why sometimes it's to serve to heal. That the idea of in healing, you're doing an act of service. So if God needed us to fill him up with something he didn't already have, so to speak, uh, definitely perhaps unexpected use of the term there. But uh, So you can see that even though in the New Testament you see worship, worship, worship uh, in different versions, there's this whole range of Greek words where the primary thrust in each is just a little different. And the problem comes in when you confuse it all. Sometimes, you know, and not all versions are going to translate them as worship all the time. There's a great variety involved and we need to be careful about that. So what we've seen though, what these words mean. Yeah, shahak and proskunein. Those are gestures of humiliation. Bowing or prostrating. Rendering obeisance. Avad and latrue in her service. They can be secular service, religious service, ritual, and otherwise. And look, these words are properly translated as worship because of the range of meaning of the English word worship. Because when you prostrate before God, you would be showing honor reverence to superior. When you're doing religious service, it's an act of adoration, and that also uh, qualifies. But prostration and actual religious service are different things. Is prostration, could prostration be an act of religious service? Yes. But not all acts of religious service are prostration. And as we've seen, prostration is not something that we see being done by Christians from Acts to Jude until the Revelation. Okay. And it's this confusion between the two that has really led to our worship. Because this is what happens. There's one side that emphasizes worship as proskuning, that specific action of prostrating before God. And what they'll then do is they'll say, well, look, Abraham prostrated before God. He did it was a one-time act, it was a specific act, it wasn't all of life. And then, you know, and then they'll associate that with the acts of the assembly. And specifically narrow it to the acts of the assembly. And would uh, discount or disparage any claim that worship would extend beyond that. Now, on the other side, a lot of people emphasize worship in terms of latra ewing, that service of serving God. They'll connect it to the assembly, but also the rest of life in Romans 12 and verse 1. Now, what's going on here is each group is focusing on one half of the English definition, focusing on one Greek word to the against the other, and they're talking past each other. Because if you're... Uh, they're arguing about this. And, and there's a point perhaps they used to have, uh, but uh, they're both wrong. Because English includes both concepts. The problem is that proskunein is not referring to the assembly in the New Testament or the acts of the assembly. It's its own action. And that acts of religious service, if only spoken of in terms of the assembly, becomes a very confusing thing. Because you got different Hebrew and Greek concepts, and we need to keep them distinct and recognize a difference in usage. There's lots of times where those words are being used. Uh, for instance, uh, Philippians 3.3, Paul talks about the we who, you know, in the English it says worship. It's not proskunein, it's latreuo, it's we who serve. That would be a natural time to talk about proskune and prostrate, if that's what they're doing. It's, they're very quick to use proskune to talk about what they're doing in the Old Covenant in Acts 8 and in Acts 24, about what happened in chapter 21. But the fact that then they don't use that term to describe what they're doing as Christians is very interesting. It goes back to serving. And so that's why we need to be very careful with this. 
And that's why we can argue that the term worship has become difficult and challenging, like baptism and like church. Church it becomes so confusing because uh, in the New Testament it's the people of God. Um, local congregations of the universal congregation of actually assembled those who share that identity also can refer to political assemblies and things of that nature or church in English uh, refers to buildings can refer to organizations and things that the Greek term just does not have in mind and a lot of people use the word church think building think institution when the New Testament is using people you can use church as people and likewise, you can use worship as prostration or, and worship as actual religious service and, and keep it all straight yourself. But when you use those words as somebody who does not have that understanding, how do they understand what you mean and how are they, they're, they're going to have this other concept and edifice reinforced? Because the English is so much more expansive than the Hebrew and Greek individual terms. So, what do we mean about worship? Well, it's, you can use it to express biblical truths if used properly. But it's often used improperly in the world and among many who profess to be Christians. And if we use worship to refer exclusively to the assembly and its activities, we're not using the word the way it's being used in the New Testament. I think that's very important to keep in mind. If the only thing we call worship is what we do in the assembly, that is, there's no New Testament justification for that. If you're going to call what you do in the New Test in the assemblies worship, then you're going to also have to call everything else you're doing to serve God worship, because the only acceptable use of that is as definition five to perform religious service. If you're going to talk it about pro- terms of prostration, well, it's not what is consistent with the usage of the New Testament. That, that prostration is not going on in New Testament assemblies by believers, and so we need to recognize that. You can also just talk about it in terms of prostration and service to avoid the confusion around worship. We can also use worship, by the way, just to talk about prostration. You know, use it, not use it in terms of the assembly. Only talk about worship in terms of hitting the ground. That would be actually the most consistent use because that's the primary meaning of the term in English, primary usage and translation for us in the New Testament and Old Testament. And so that would be uh, completely acceptable as well, to, de- to delineate worship and service. But if we're going to delineate worship and service, we're going to have to realize that what's going on in the assembly is thus not worship, it's service. And to be okay with that, because that is what is consistent with New Testament usage. So, hope that we've tried to understand the word worship, and that the English definition is expansive, uh, and that it includes many uh, concepts in Hebrew and Greek. That, yeah, you can use worship to translate those legitimately when properly understood, but we see there's a lot of confusion out there, and I'm sure that it, you can see that very clearly. And so, again, we're glad that you've joined us, and now you can kind of compare how you kind of saw worship at the beginning and, and, and looking at this range of evidence that we've tried to present to show how it's being used in the Bible. And again, don't you feel bad if there's a, a major difference, because recognize that there's a lot of confusion out there in the way the terms are used, and uh, a lot of times the way we use terms is just kind of the way other people use the term. And so I just hope that this has been clarifying for you, and uh, maybe you've got some questions about it, maybe you got some pushback, maybe you'd like to discuss this further. Uh, be happy to talk more about it. Um, maybe you have some evidence that I haven't heard and that I need to reconsider some of these things. Uh, You'd be my friend to let me know that. Uh, Or maybe you'd like to talk about other things about becoming a Christian, how we are to follow and serve God, and how we can glorify Him. Maybe you just need to talk or a prayer request. If there's any way I can be of assistance, please let me know. Contact me through my website at deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. You can also learn more about the Venice Church of Christ. If you want more about us, come check us out. We're at VenezuelaChristChrist.org, and we're also on social media. We again thank you. Have a great day.